We are in the middle of the 13 principles of faith as codified by Rambam. These are the 13 principles upon which our religion is based. These are the philosophical tenets and ideals of our people. And we've covered a lot since we began many moons ago. We're currently in principle number 11, which talks about reward and punishment. The idea that the Almighty rewards those who adhere to him, who listen to him, who obey his commands, who follow his dicta, and punishment for those who disobey, who reject the word of their creator. Now, the Ramam told us that this is specifically oriented around reward and punishment in the afterlife, meaning after your tenure in this world. You know, in this world, we're currently constructed as this hybrid figure. We have the body that's hosting the soul, and the body's ever-changing. Every day, you have millions of new cells that didn't exist yesterday. And of course, the body follows this arc. We don't know exactly when the arc's going to end, but when it ends, the body stops being useful. It loses all its utility, and it is interred in the ground, and that's basically the last we hear about it at least for now in this world. The soul moves on because the soul does not die with death. In the world of that soul, after its departure, we're told that that is where the true venue of reward and punishment is. And we're going to learn more about the specifics and the details of how that actually works. But today, I want to cover something which will serve as almost like an introduction to our next batch of subjects that we're going to cover. We have a lot still to cover on this subject in this principle. I want to proceed kind of gently and cautiously as we like to do. And the subject that we will cover is the afterlife in general, and specifically the absence or the apparent absence of citations of the afterlife in Torah literature. So we're going to talk about instances where we seem to get opposing messages from the Torah and the scripture in general. We seem to get opposing messages to this principle in the Ramah. The Ramah tells us that reward and punishment, well, that's, that's for the afterlife. Apparently, if you look at scripture, there are mentions of reward and punishment not in the afterlife, but in this world. And there are not, there seems to be a total omission of any overt references or mentions to the afterlife in Torah literature. And probing that question and pondering that question, I think will help us understand the Torah's understanding or the Torah's guidance on reward and punishment in general. And then once we do that, we can proceed to the specifics. So the Ram tells us, that the ultimate reward and punishment is in the afterlife. And what that means, the afterlife, we're just using that as a general catch-all term of our existence after our life here. I mentioned in the past, it's one of my pet peeves. I don't like calling it the afterlife because that implies that this world is life and what comes afterwards is just the afterlife. That's a mistake. We believe that this world is a corridor, a pre-life to life when our soul is unshackled and unbounded from the body host. But nevertheless, we're going to use that term, the colloquial term of the afterlife, 
And that is the venue of reward and punishment. Yet when we look at the scripture, we find a seemingly different story. There are no explicit, overt citations that point to the afterlife as the venue of reward and punishment. In fact, we get quite the opposite. It seems that the emphasis of the Torah, when the Torah is forecasting reward and punishment, reward from its most punishment for transgressions against the word and the will of God, it seems like the story that we get is reward and punishment here. You know, we just read in the parasha, this is Leviticus chapter 26. If you listen to God and you walk in God's ways, if you toil in Torah, Rashi famously tells us, then all manner of good things will happen to you here. You'll have rain in its time and bountiful crops and stability and security and satiation, peace in the land. When you pursue your enemies, you just need a few people to pursue many. There will be peace, no wild animals, no war. God will be close to you. He will dwell amongst you. He will maintain his covenant with you. You'll have so much bounty such abundance that you'll eat the old produce. God won't reject you. Things will be amazing. But there's no reference, there's no mention to the afterlife. The reward apparently is here. And then you fast forward a a few verses to verse 14 of the aforementioned Leviticus chapter 26. And it talks about the punishment. If you reject God and his Torah, And it continues for dozens and dozens of verses that talk about all the terrible things that will befall us here if we reject God. Reward and punishment is addressed in the Torah, but it seems to focus not on the afterlife, but on life here. Now, this section, Leviticus 26, is known as the tochacha, or the admonishment, the reprimandation, the castigation. I don't know what that correct term is. But it's the forecasting of punishment if we disobey God and reward if we listen to him. There is another more expanded version of this in Devarim, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, Parshas Tisavo. And again, we're presented with that binary choice. If you listen to God, things will be great for you and you'll have the peace and stability and all goodness and you'll be blessed here. Oh, if you choose to disobey God, it unleashes 98 Curses, terrible, just so hard to read, curses that will befall you again here. It's the same pattern, and the emphasis again seems to orient on reward and punishment in this world. So here's the question. If the afterlife, and again, we're using that as a catch-all term because we have not quite gotten into the specifics. There are a lot of different things that are included under the rubric of the afterlife. But if the afterlife, Omaba, Ganeden, paradise, heaven, hell, all the things that happen to the soul or to the person, more specifically, more accurately, after their tenure here, if that is the true venue of reward for mitzvot and punishment for sins, why is it not mentioned in the Torah? Why is it apparently withheld from the literature? Why does the Torah withhold telling us what happens to us after we pass? The Torah does describe all these amazing material bounties that we will get in the event that we adhere to God's word, but there is no mention or no overt mention 
of the spiritual reward in the afterlife? And the question is, why? Now, this is not a new question. It's a very good question. And it's one that's asked by all of the classic commentators. They all ask the question. So it's not a new question. But I think when we we study their answers, and the answers, by the way, are not mutually exclusive, each one of the answers is going to give us another bit of information to help round out our understanding on a general sense of the afterlife in general. And I think it will it will position us to begin our exploration of the details. So let's begin. The first idea we have to mention is that the the afterlife is actually mentioned many, many times. It's not overt. It's not so explicit. It's not spelled out in graphic detail. There are no vivid descriptions of the afterlife, but it is mentioned. In fact, the Mishnah in the book of Sanhedrin on page 90a, a very famous Mishnah, called Yisrael, yesh lahem chelek all of Israel has a portion in the world to come. We've talked about this mission in the past. And then it gives us the list of the people that lose their portion in the world to come. And one of the crimes that makes a person ineligible for the afterlife is a lack of belief in the afterlife, and specifically a lack of belief of the scriptural citations for the existence of the afterlife. I always say, this is just a side point, that the people who don't believe in the afterlife, in a weird, twisted, ironic way, are actually correct. Because if you don't believe in the afterlife, then you don't have a lot of pleasant things to look forward to. That's what the Mishnah tells us. If you don't believe in the existence of the afterlife, that would be one reason that you would not merit the reward of the afterlife. But it doesn't say you have to believe in the afterlife in general. It says you have to believe that the afterlife is sourced in the Torah. So if you believe in the afterlife, I believe. But you don't think that it's sourced scripturally in the Torah? Rashi is a famous Rashi in this comment. He says, we don't care what you believe. You have to believe that the veracity of the afterlife is sourced in Scripture. One of the people, again, that loses their portion of the world to come, Haomer ain't who says that there's no resurrection of the dead, which we're using interchangeably to describe the existence of the afterlife. And again, the breakdown of resurrection of the dead and Olamaba and Gehenna and Ganeiden and reincarnation, all those things are the details that we're still going to get to. But the existence of life after our tenure here, you have to believe that that is sourced in the Torah. There, of course, a lot of different junctures along that continuum of the afterlife. And we're going to elaborate upon those, please God, soon. But we have to believe that the afterlife is biblically sourced. And the Talmud, when the Talmud explains this Mishnah, it actually brings around a dozen different sources from Scripture. So the Torah indeed does mention the existence of the afterlife. But it doesn't mention it explicitly. It doesn't elaborate upon it. It doesn't describe it in vivid detail. It hints to it. There are all kinds of references to it, but they're a little bit more obscure. 
that's there's still room for our question, but it's important for us to note that it does in fact mention it. Now the Ramban in chapter 18 of Leviticus has a beautiful idea. And he brings a proof to the existence of the afterlife that's not featured in the Talmud. But he also explains why the Torah would omit overt references to the afterlife. In chapter 18 of Leviticus, the Torah is talking about all the various crimes that would render a person or render their soul to be cut off from the nation. This is the idea of kares, which means the cut off, that someone could be cut off or the soul could be cut off from its source. And he explains it's kind of like a tree. If you cut off a branch, the branch dies. If you cut off the soul from its source, the soul is dead. And there are many different crimes that fall under that category. And I hope to actually discuss this subject in detail because there are many different levels of kares and they each refer to something different. But the Ramban has an amazing proof for the existence of the afterlife, A, and the reason why it was omitted in Scripture from this idea. And he tells us, the Torah elaborates in great detail of all the different crimes, about all the different crimes that result in the person's soul being cut off. And this proves that absent those terrible crimes, the soul is not cut off. And therefore we know, not a, a proof of commission, but a proof of omission, we know, or this gives us great confidence that after death, the soul endures. And there's a world the soul goes to, not the people whose souls cut off. Those are the exceptions, but everyone else is included in that world. So when the Torah tells us of the people that, due to their heinous and grievous and egregious sins, they have their souls cut off, that tells us that it's only them, those the souls of those sinners who get their souls cut off. Veshar hanafashas, but the rest of the souls, says the Ramban, asher lochatu did not sin, well, their soul endures. It's only the sinner who gets cut off, but the souls of non-sinners are not cut off. And he explains, he says, why would you think that the soul would get cut off? After all, where does the soul come from? We talked about this. The soul was breathed into the nostrils of man by God. The soul originates from a very, very high and lofty place. The soul's not like the body, that it just falls apart, that it ceases to work. Naturally, the soul endures forever. The Ramban has this theme that he revisits many places in his commentary on the Torah about the idea of composite entities eventually decomposing. Anything that's an amalgam, that's, that's, that's a mashup of different things eventually has to, the, the, the different particles, the different elements have to go back to be separate entities. So bodies which are a composite must eventually decompose, must eventually be restored back to their component parts. But the soul 
that's not a composite, it should endure forever. So he's explained to us, A, a scriptural source, by omission, of the existence of the afterlife, and B, a logical source, because why would the soul die? Why would the fact that someone, someone's body stops to work, why would that mandate that their soul stops to work? doesn't make any sense. Continues the Ramban with a third point, and that is the reason why the Torah doesn't mention the afterlife. He says, the Torah doesn't need to mention it because it tells us the opposite, that with sin the soul is rejected, it's repelled, it is defiled, but absent that, it endures. And then he adds, it's really natural. It's business as usual for the soul to endure. And the Torah doesn't need to tell us things that are so obvious, that are just natural, the, the way things ought to be. The notion of the soul dying, that, that's the news, that's the insight, that's, the, that's, that's something supernatural. That's something which is a departure from the way things always are. The Torah only talks about supernatural rewards. The Torah only needs to mention things that are out of the ordinary. The fact that an eternal soul endures eternally, that's obvious. That's what you would expect. It's like the old saying, you know, what makes news? Dog bites man or man bites dog? The dog always bites the man. That's not news. When the man bites the dog, that is, well, that that makes the headlines. Things that are expected Things that are standard are omitted. The lack of some soul having afterlife, that's the news. That's the exception. That's when things are supernatural, are a departure from the way things ought to be. And therefore, the Torah needs to talk about the soul being cut off. But the soul enduring, that's obvious. That's not news. There's no reason to be told this. So the omission of explicit verses on the reward of the soul in the afterlife, says the Ramban, it's because it's so obvious. It is expected. That is the Ramban in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 29. In chapter 28 of Leviticus, in the admonition, this is verse 12, he revisits this point and adds some more wrinkles. And he's, again, dealing with the same question. Why is there omission of mention of reward in the afterlife in the Torah? And as a, as a sidebar, he breaks down reward in the afterlife to one section that he calls Gan Eden, or Olam Hanashamos, which means paradise or the world of the soul, and a different section, which is Olam Abba, which is the world that comes after the resurrection. And again, how that all works, it's those subjects that we need to cover in the future. But keep it in mind for later. That's an important thing. There are two different worlds of reward, one called Olam HaNashamas, the world of the souls, alternatively called Gan Eden or heaven or paradise. And then there's a second venue or a second dimension of reward, which is what's called Olam about the next world, the upcoming world, which is the world after the resurrection. And he tells us the same idea that he mentioned earlier. The soul to endure is business as usual. The soul to be cut off is news. 
And why would you even consider that an eternal soul would perish? And then he adds a second idea, which I'll just say quickly. He says, actually, Kabbalistically, if you know how to read with a Kabbalistic lens, when it talks about the rain and the bounty and the stability and the peace and the banishing of the enemies, when it describes all the material blessings, Kabbalistically, it's actually referring to Olamaba and Gan Eden. You just have to know how to read it. But then he tells us, you know, we had, we had two questions initially. Why would the Torah highlight the reward and punishment here on terra firma? And why would the Torah omit the explicit mention of reward and punishment in the afterlife? So he, he told us in, in the past that, well, the soul enduring in the afterlife is business as usual. In chapter 28, he adds another wrinkle. He says that reward in this world is supernatural. The Torah only tells us about reward and punishment that is a departure from the norm, things that are miracles. Material bounties being correlated to the righteousness of people, you do the mitzvos, you get rain. You don't do the mitzvos, you don't get rain. That's a miracle. That's something which is supernatural. And therefore, it's told in the Torah. But the enduring of the soul in the afterlife, it could be inferred, it doesn't need to be mentioned explicitly, because that is just the business as usual that is normal. I find this really interesting, this Ramban, and again, there's two comments in chapter 18 and chapter 28 of Leviticus, because what he's saying is really hard for us to accept. You know, we have such an earth-centric, body-centric worldview. To us, the afterlife is this weird idea out there in the ether. We don't know anything about it. This world, well, this is the natural world. He's telling us that the existence of the afterlife, that's the default view. That's just normal. It's the absence of the afterlife, that's the novelty, and therefore that has to be mentioned when the soul gets cut off. But again, if God blew the soul of man into his nostrils, why would you think it should cease to exist? This Ramban is simultaneously logical, it's also surprising, it makes a ton of sense, but it violates our worldview because, again, we're not used to thinking those terms. But it's helping align our understanding of the subject with the Torah's understanding of the subject. So to answer our question, just the first answer that we're going to offer, why does the Torah omit, why does it withhold mentions of the afterlife, and it does emphasize reward and punishment here? Well, the answer is because it only tells us things that are out of the ordinary. And the soul, the eternal soul enduring, is totally normal and expected. Now, there's an amazing comment in the commentary of the Kliyakar, one of the one of the great commentators on the Torah. Again, in Leviticus chapter 26, in verse 12, and he asks our question, and he offers seven different answers to our question. 
seven different answers to the question of why the Torah does not highlight and discuss overtly the reward in the afterlife. And again, we know it does hint to it, it's inferred, but the question is why is it not emphasized more if this is the actual venue of reward and punishment? And the first answer he gives is the position of the Rambam. The Rambam says the Torah does not mention reward and punishment at all. It doesn't mention it at all. And the reason why is because if it would mention it, then people would say, I'm doing the mitzvos in order to get the reward. And I'm avoiding those sins in order to avoid the pain of the punishment. And that is a suboptimal way of living. The optimal way of living is living because you're following the Word of God, because you love God. Not because of some kickback that you get, that you get this reward and you avoid this punishment. Think about it, you know, if if, if the president, we try to keep things apolitical. So if you like the current guy, then the current guy, if not the previous guy, the guy before him, a king, some sort of leader, some sort of important person, they ask you for a glass of water. It's an honor. It's a privilege. I get to service the king? What about the guy who says, you know what? I'll bring it for you, but you have to promise that you do this and that for me. That's not That's not the way you treat a king. It's all transactional. It's all an exchange. That's not the proper way to behave. If we relate to God, the king of all kings, and we say, I'll do it for you, but you have to give me something in return. It's a very low level of a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. So the Torah omits any mention of reward and punishment. There's no mention of where there are. Again, it is hinted to, it's inferred, but the Torah does not want to talk about this because that might make us think that this is the ideal way to, to live, that everything's a transaction with God. So there is no mention of reward and punishment in the Torah. But wait a minute. Didn't we read chapter 26 of Leviticus? If you listen to God, you follow his ways and listen to his mitzvos and walk in his ways, then you'll have rain and bounty and all these great things. Says the Ramam, that is not reward. That is not reward. That is an expense account. If you are going to be God's emissary, he will make your life easy. He will enable, he will facilitate you doing what you need to do. That is not reward. That's him clearing the path, removing the obstacles, flattening the surface, enabling you to do what you need to do. If you're working for God, if you are representing him in this world, if you are fighting for his agenda, in this world. He's not going to allow you to get sidetracked with financial troubles, with geopolitical problems, with health problems. He wants to make it easier for you. But that is not reward at all. That is just facilitatory. It's just to enable, to facilitate you to do what you, what you need to do. But it's not meant to reward at all. 
a beautiful idea of the Rambam here. The notion of making our mitzvot transactional, it's so abominable, in his words, it's abominable to tell God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That's a very low level of living. Torah does not want to encourage that. The Torah does not mention reward at all. Not reward and not punishment. It does hint to it, but that's not the focus. It doesn't want to get us into the frame of mind that we're doing things with the anticipation, with the expectation of receiving reward. What it does mention, when it does link good behavior to good outcomes in this world, that's not reward at all. That is to facilitate, to enable, to clear the path, to remove the inhibitors, to enable us to do what we are, in fact, doing. It's important for us to stress the idea of us doing things for ulterior motives that is something which is tolerable, says the Talmud, because when you start off and you don't really have a relationship with God, then it's okay to think about the transactional nature just to get you in the mood of following his ways. You start off, you're selfish, and that's what we need. That's the impetus. That's the Kickstarter to get our relationship with God going. But the Torah does not want to highlight the reward for mitzvot because focusing on that would produce a suboptimal Result where people may be doing God's will for the sake of reward. That's the first idea that the Kliyakar offers us, courtesy of the Rambam. And then he tells us another angle, which again, each one of these is going to help piece together our general understanding of this subject before we get into the details. He quotes the Ibn Ezra. Again, one of the great medieval commentators on the Torah. And he says that the reason why the Torah omits mention of the afterlife, or explicit mention of the afterlife, well, that's because it's too esoteric. The Torah is meant for the masses. Children are supposed to study the Torah. Fools, lay people, simpletons. They have to understand the Torah as well. The Torah does not discuss, or at least not overtly, themes that very few people can understand. A first-grade child and a 90-year-old sage, they read the same verses in Scripture. The Torah has to be elastic enough, flexible enough, to accommodate every level of knowledge and aptitude. In the end of his life, the great Gon of Vilna, he would study exclusively from a Torah scroll, just the words of scripture, and would take all of the literature and all of the secrets and all the insights and bring it back to its source in the text. Even the greatest scholars can study the same scripture as the small child. But the Torah has to have the ability, says the Ibn Ezra, for the small child, for the layperson, to understand to understand scripture. But Olam Abba, the afterlife, even a basic understanding is possible only to one in a thousand people. It's totally inaccessible to the simpletons and therefore the Torah only hints at it and does not overtly and explicitly discuss it. The Talmud tells us that Olam Haba, the world to come, is beyond the purview of even the great 
prophets. Ayn lo rasan, I cannot see it. It's like the sun. You want to try staring at the sun to understand it? It's beyond you. You cannot do it. You don't have the tools to process something as bright as that. Olam Abba is like the sun. Even the prophets couldn't see it. Something so arcane and esoteric cannot be explicitly in the Torah. The Torah has to accommodate the mortal, the fallible, and sometimes even the ignorant and foolish humans. And that's why, says the Ibn Ezra, Olam Abba and all its great mysteries and secrets is omitted, at least explicitly, it's not featured explicitly in the scripture. Another very interesting idea. The third position that the Kliakar offers, that's like the Ramban, the same idea. Afterlife is natural. The Torah only tells us things that are supernatural, like rain coming as a result of mitzvah observance. And then he adds another reason. He says that when you have reward here, it's very persuasive. And God wanted the people who were studying the Torah to have a little boost of faith. And what's more persuasive, something that you can see or something that you cannot see? And therefore God says, I'm going to talk about the reward here because that will help trigger more faith because that is something that people can in fact see. And then he adds, if the Torah mentioned or talked about or focused on reward in the afterlife, that's not so persuasive because that is what charlatans do. If someone wants to lie, they distance the witnesses. If you want to be a charlatan, you would do what the Christians do. Oh, you have to believe in JC because otherwise you'll be punished. Where are you punished? In, in a place that no one could see. No one's been there. No one's come back to tell us about it. Good luck trying to disprove them. That's the mark of a charlatan. They offer you unfalsifiable claims. There are people in this world that believe that our great ancestors were primates. Oh, there was a gorilla or a monkey, and eventually, after millions of years and mutations and ways that no one really knows how it actually works, suddenly they became a little bit more erect and eventually became humans. I think that's baloney. I think it's total nonsense. And there's a total dearth of evidence that that actually happened. And in fact, there is negative evidence. Because in 2021, there were around 8 billion human years experienced across the globe. Every person, around 8 billion people, everyone lived a year. So there were 8 billion years and not a single speciation event. Not a single human that became a little bit different, a new species. So we have 8 billion years of evidence and not even one. And that's that's only 2021. What about 2020? Another 8 billion years. And a total dearth of this magical speciation where people just suddenly become different species. It doesn't happen. But what do they say? Well, of course, there's no evidence here. No evidence that you could see. 
And yeah, you have all this counter evidence. Yeah, but well, three million years ago, that's when it all happened. The mark of the charlatan is to present claims that are unfalsifiable. How did inanimate matter become animate? How do you have, you know, billions of proteins in every little strand of DNA and you have trillions of cells in your body and they all have this. It's all magical. There's nothing that we could do to replicate it. How did it all happen? Absent a creator, a higher intelligence. Oh, that's beyond the scope of science. That's something we don't know. Go disprove them. The Torah does not act like charlatans. Yes, the Torah, we do believe in reward and punishment in the afterlife. But when the Torah presents its its case, it talks only about things that we can see in this world. And we look back at history, we do see the correlation of our state in this world with our relationship with God. When we turn away from him, he turns away from us and we suffer here. What happens in the afterlife? We believe in it. And the Torah does hint at it. But it's not focused upon because that is what charlatans do. And therefore, the Torahs want to resort to those low-level proofs and threats and tactics. So instead, it tells us, hey, life here will be better because of mitzvahs. And life here will be worse if we disobey, reject, repudiate, abandon God. And we have a long series of historical events that fit this pattern precisely. So there you go. The proof is right here. We don't need to scare you with what's going to happen. We'll still scare you. Don't worry. There's still plenty of scary stuff to talk about, but it's not mentioned explicitly in the Torah because that is not the way the Torah wants to get our attention and influence us. Very interesting idea that the Kliakar brings here, courtesy of the Kuzari. The fifth idea that he offers on our question so we have a lot of different answers to this question. The fifth idea he brings, courtesy of Sa'ad Yagon, he says something really interesting. When I was discussing this with one of my friends, I said, I find this to be maybe a stretch. And then he told me, he says, well, actually, this is the one that I like the most. So I guess uh, different strokes for different folks. He says, when the Jewish people accept the Torah, Previously, there had been pagans in Egypt. Many of the Jews, most of the Jews, adopted the pagan ways and principles and beliefs of their Egyptian neighbors. And what the pagans promised, if you worship Baal and you worship this idol and that idol, you'll have grain and you'll have rain and you'll have material bounty. And now the Jewish people are told, well, you have to reject all that idolatry. And God is telling us, you have to reject the idolatry and accept the actual true power, the one singular power that rules all. But he said, well, I'm going to make sure that you don't lose out. And therefore, you relied on your pagan for material blessing. I'll make sure that you won't lose out. You'll still have material blessing now that you've adopted, or now that you've abandoned, or you still have a promise of material blessing now that you've abandoned the pagan. This is a general principle we see in many places in Jewish literature and philosophy. 
that there is always like a kosher outlet for a bad habit. Like, for example, the Talmud says, if you really, really liked pork and you're so addicted and the Torah tells us you can't have it, it's just not possible for you to have it. Well, there's actually one fish called a shibuta and the head of that fish tastes exactly like pork. So there's a kosher outlet. There's a kosher fish. If you really can't get that habit, there's a kosher outlet to that. The, the Rambam says, this is a very controversial piece in the Rambam, but one of his reasons to explain sacrifices is that the, Jew, the, the Jewish people, previously they were pagans, and they did animal sacrifices to the pagan deities, and now they have to have like a kosher outlet to that habit. They have become habituated in the ways of animal sacrifices and now they have the one God. They want to find a kosher outlet to that desire to offer animal sacrifices. You know, if you have someone who's getting off heroin, it's okay for them to have a little whiskey and maybe a cigar. It's okay. Give them a good outlet, even if it's necessarily not the best one, but it's, 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 um, it's a bad habit or a bad tendency, a bad proclivity on its own. But if they are, if they're detoxifying themselves from a really, really bad habit, it's okay for them to have some version of that that is not as destructive. And therefore, says Sadiron, God says, okay, I'll give you material blessings. This world, don't think that you're losing out by abandoning those pagans, by abandoning, by abandoning those pagans. But Olamaba, was never part of the promise of the pagans. And therefore, there's no need to have that explicitly mentioned in the scripture. A sixth position that he offers, a sixth answer to this question of why the Torah omits explicit, overt mentions of the afterlife, is because, well, the Torah promises spiritual reward here. The Torah says, this is again chapter 26 of Leviticus, God will walk amongst us in this world. He will establish his sanctuary, the temple, the tabernacle, amongst us. God is saying, I will be close to you in this world. Even in this world, the antithetical world to God, God will be close to us. All the more so. It implies that for certain, in the spiritual world, where there are no inhibitions, where it's not an antithetical world to God, we will still, we will definitely have a connection to the divine after we have shedded ourselves of physicality and the material existence in this world. And finally, the seventh position, the seventh answer to this question as to why the Torah omits explicit mention of the afterlife, is because the Torah only promises communal reward, but spiritual reward in the afterlife is individual. It's contingent on the righteousness of the particular individual. And the Talmud says that every individual is going to be singed when they look at the canopy of their friend. And therefore, it is not included because the Torah only mentions communal reward and not individual reward.
Now, the Kliyakr himself, who collects these seven different answers, he offers some nice proofs of his own. And he says that if you read the Torah, it's undeniable that God loves Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their children. But if there was no reward of the afterlife, if this was just a dead end, then Abraham and Nimrod would be in the same place. If here's all that matters, well, then Abraham fared no better than Nimrod. We could say in modern terms, if there's no afterlife, then Hitler and Gandhi are in the same place now. And that is not logical to say that God would design a system that is so unfair and so unbalanced. It just, it just doesn't make sense. So once you accept the existence of God, the omnipotence of God, and the fact that God is telling us the moral way to live, and that God does dispense reward and punishment, it makes no sense to say that that would not actually be resolved, that things won't be balanced out in the afterlife. So we have a lot of answers to this question, and I do think that it helps round out our understanding of the afterlife. We still want to get into the details. We still want to talk about, you know, the post-mortem judgment and heaven and hell and what that's like. And maybe we'll talk about reincarnation and why that's an important piece of this puzzle. And Olam and Gan Eden and paradise and kares and the various different kinds of kares and what they mean. But I think we got a lot of ideas, maybe as a as like a, a stepping stone, before we dig into the details. I think of it as like a like a transition between we talked about the soul and the the anatomy of the soul and the components of the soul and the origin of the soul and what makes a Jewish soul special. And we're gonna transition to talk about the afterlife, but I think talking about just the the Torah's relationship towards the afterlife in general, I think it helps understand or helps position us for our next, for our next subject. And we learned a lot of lessons. The Torah omits overt mention of the afterlife for very good reasons. Of course, it is hinted to, but it's not explicitly spelled out in the Torah. And the Ramban told us that the idea of the soul being cut off due to sin, well, that reveals that absent sin the soul would endure forever. And that, of course, makes sense. That's natural. That is business as usual. That's the nature of the eternal soul. It's not news. And the Torah only spells out supernatural reward and punishment, like rain being correlated to behavior. The Rambam told us that the Torah does not mention any reward at all, because that would be a suboptimal way of living. It does hint at it but it doesn't mention reward at all. But it does talk about reward. That's not real reward. That's facilitatory reward. That's not actual reward. We have the Ibn Ezra, who told us that all of us is too esoteric. Torah has to be, or at least the literature, the simple ring of the literature has to be understandable to all. We have the idea that the Torah is not going to offer us proofs that are not falsifiable. The Torah will not resort to the unproven 
and unprovable threats of the false religions. We have the idea of the replacement for pagan promises, a kosher outlet for a bad need or for something that we are accustomed to. We had the idea of spiritual reward here, mandating spiritual reward in the afterlife. And finally, with the idea of communal versus individual reward, there are a lot of principles to help us bring this distant idea a bit closer. But I'll tell you, there are many other ideas that we need to cover. I'm really excited. And we also have principle 12 upcoming, which is the idea of the Messiah. We have a lot to cover before we get there, but there are many interesting times ahead. This was really enjoyable. I enjoyed doing this with you all from the Torch Center here in Houston, Texas. If you want to send me a comment or a question or an email or just to reach out and say hi, my email just says rabbiwolby at gmail.com. If you want to know more about Torch, our organization, what we do, and the various different programs that we offer, and the various different podcasts that we have, our website is torchweb.org. This was a delight and a joy, and I'm looking forward to your questions and your comments and your feedback.